Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And there it is. There it is. 2021, 2020 fun. Let's do this. I'm excited. It took a little time. Holidays, didn't podcast so much so we could focus on the family, but we are back at it and I am stoked. I'm so excited. Happens to be a Friday today while we're recording this. And, and I was just commenting with this guest who I will introduce you to that what better way can you spend a Friday than a podcast on marketing? And I'm actually talking to who, who is she? She is an actual rock star, an actual rock star. She has a bass guitar behind her. Um, no kidding. Marketing, music, all the good things, customer experience. We're going to have such a good time today. She is a marketing leader and a friend. I've known her for quite a bit and we, we sort of kept in touch and, and, and I've seen her grow into this, this thought leader and leader in, uh, in the company that she's working at. Nearly 20 years of experience in marketing, nonprofits, enterprise, education, and she took on sales, which we're going to talk about. Danger, danger land, but she uh, she took that on, cleaned it up, made it happen. Entrepreneur, mission-driven, customer experience. She's founded her own agencies before, formerly the CMO, now CXO, Chief Experience Officer of Board on Track, Rachel Jordan. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. So I'm stoked you're here, and let's get this thing going. <laughs> it's going good. It's... <laughs> I feel like I was just telling someone last night, this year has already been a year. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Time really flies. Um, and yeah, it's already 2021. I'm cool with it. I know we still got a little bit of COVID to deal with, but yeah. it's a fresh new year and I'm determined to make this a fun one, no matter what, yeah. you know, I was kind yeah. of on the backseat on 2020, but. For sure. Yeah. And I think, uh, Everyone I know and definitely in my team, we kind of started this new year with taking a really deep breath, right? And being very, very focused and kind of going at a deliberate pace. We were like, all right, we're going to be really, really clear about what our goals are for this quarter and this year. We're not going to do too much. We're going to do just the right things. We're going to use our time and our resources really, really wisely. And we were all very focused and relaxed for a week or two. And then everyone kind of went like all of a sudden we're in, you know, 12 hours of meetings a day and just going crazy, crazy fast breakneck speed. I guess we all hit our stride, but uh, yeah, it's good. It's exciting. So let's do this because I know you came here to wage war. I have this. I'm going to hand it to you now. Okay. It's Thor's hammer. You got it. All right. I got okay. it. Nice. Nice. Uh, take Thor's hammer, smash some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception, set the record straight once and for all. All right. I am smashing every myth about sales readiness. All right. Yeah. Sales this is, okay. readiness. Sales readiness. That this assumption that they're only sales ready when they're begging you to give them your money. This is just not, it's not the way it works. It's not the way it works in B2B ever. Um, and it's definitely a, big piece of the tug of war that I've seen in my, you know, decade plus of B2B making marketing and sales play nicely together, right? Is deciding what sales readiness means and does it really mean that they're just begging you to hand over that check or is there still a little bit of work to do and how do you define that and how do you agree with each other on what it means and why? Yeah, define and agree because what, what ends up happening, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up, the whole thing of, well, that lead's not ready to go. Here you go, marketing, take them back. Like, well, at what point? Yeah, like, are we just handing them over to like ring to check them out at the cash register, like where with the outlets or something? Yeah, and then you end up in this endless cycle of you know redefining what it means and do we have enough leads or are they not the right leads? And you just go back and forth and back and forth trying to you know endlessly tweak things to decide am I trying to fix a volume problem or a value problem or velocity problem when really it's just deciding what readiness means. And the other part of it is deciding where marketing ends and sales begins. We can talk about this later, but I think part of it is that we're just kind of living in this post-marketing world where there's not a clear end point for marketing anymore. 
So sales readiness really means they're ready to keep talking to us, not they're ready to buy from us right now, right? Nobody's going to whip their credit card out and sign on to a giant B2B, you know, year-long contract, especially if you're a company like mine or the last one I was at, where we're not talking about some, you know, free trial to a small monthly fee. We're talking about a real contract. You know, you yeah. just have to, it's about building a sales readiness means you're ready to build a relationship, not that you're ready to be a customer tomorrow. Ready to build a relationship and not yeah. be a customer. What, it, now, are there absolute points? Are there like absolute principles to this or is it different for every company? And then how did you figure it out? So I do think it's different for every company. So my okay. last company, the sales cycle was much more complex and longer and involved far more people than this one does. And also was larger, right? The sales team was larger, the marketing team was larger. And so you're just talking about different processes. Uh, this team is a lean startup in every sense of the word, you know, um, small team that moves fast and um, uses our resources really, really well. And also that means that we're really available to our both our customers and our prospects, right? We have to build a relationship with each one and kind of carry them through the process. Um, so we do have very clearly defined points and we have a clearly defined playbook on, you know, what happens when someone's passed over from marketing to sales. We have a really clear checklist of these are the things we're looking for. This is what a good fit customer is. This is not a good fit. We can be really honest and straightforward with people on our qualifying calls that, hey, it sounds like this is where you're at and these are the problems you need to solve right now. And once you do that, next year, come back to us. And people so appreciate that we're being honest. That's part of building that relationship going forward. Um, you asked about how I figured this out. So. I think I didn't figure it out until I sat in the sales seat myself. Okay. You know, I definitely spent the first year kind of doing what a lot of marketing teams do, wrestling with sales on what marketing marketing handoff should be and what sales ready means and trying every approach to lead scoring that I could think of because I've been using HubSpot since the beginning. That's what you're supposed to do, right? You inbound right. them, you score them, you automate all of it and you, you know, hand it over to sales, but it just wasn't working. And so uh, we had some changes in the team, COVID hit, there was a new sense of urgency and we said, let's try something completely different. So put the then chief marketing officer and our subject matter expert in the sales seats and we ran sales together for three months and totally kind of rebuilt it from the ground up and took a very non-sales approach to it and realized that's what works for us. And I think that's actually what would work for a lot of, especially B2B kind of purpose-driven brands like ours that um, people just aren't thinking about it this way. Okay. Yeah. And this makes sense. Tell me about yeah. this story. You ran sales for three months. Like that seems like, yeah. um, that's like a, wow. Like ended <laughs> up, you know, it was a dark stormy yeah. night, you know, late, exactly. late July. Like, a call from my CEO. Like you want me to do what? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, it's really easy for marketing people to sit in the marketing seat and, uh, you know, take out their frustrations on sales, right? I'm handing them all the leads. They're just not selling them or they're not calling them or, you know, yeah. they're just not saying the right things on the call. It's different when you're in that seat for sure. So uh, I learned a lot about kind of what's hard and what's easy about sales. And I think on the what's easy side was very much you just talk to people like people and not like you're trying to sell them, everything else is so much easier. And I think that's what a lot of sales people unfortunately can get wrong is you get wrapped up in all the best practices of how a sale is supposed to go. And, you know, we've read the challenger sale and we've pulled all these different tactics into our team, mm -hmm. but you have to leave all that stuff at the door when you get on a call with someone and just talk to them like a person. I think the other thing that I learned is how important it is to believe in what you're selling so that it doesn't, again, feel like you're selling to someone. The subject matter expert and I, my sales partner, we totally believe in this company and this team and the people behind it, in the problems that we're solving and in the people we're solving those problems for. And that right. comes across in the conversation. We just love talking to them. We think they're amazing. And we're excited to teach them about the stuff that we can teach them. So it doesn't ever feel like a sales call. But through that stuff, we definitely, we got down a really good rhythm of, oh, if we bring this stuff first and then we you know walk them to this thing because you know on the first call they're not ready to learn about this part of the platform because it's not what they care about yet that kind of stuff it yeah. all kind of organically gelled and all of a sudden our sales cycles were moving faster than they ever had and the average size of our deal was higher than it had ever been because we just 
We're doing it the right way. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. And I wonder if this, this happened because you came from the marketing side. And I know when you're, you know, your own agency, you're, you're selling yourself as much as you're doing marketing services. So you, it's not yeah. like, it's not like you went from never doing sales to doing sales for the first time. True. Right. So, True. You, so there's part of that, but the idea of just caring for the people, yeah. believing in the product and then cool. We got all these cool strategies and frameworks, challenger and Sandler and all these things. But in the end yeah. of the day, I, you just looked at the person like a person and you were passionate about telling them and teaching this, this stuff to them, you know? Yeah. And like, I could see that almost being the 80, 20, if you're doing that, then everything else, it's like, okay, there's some tweaks here, but it's not like you need some book on closing, you know, yeah. well, I need a tricky yeah. close. The, this is the raining close. Hey, it's going to rain out. You're going to sign this thing. Like, Oh, that right. works 97% of the time. Like you don't need that. No, and people sense that stuff now. Right? Oh, no, I think yeah. more and more that we've just been we've been using all those things for such a long time that people sense it really quickly. Um, Is it kind of like pickup lines? You know, like yeah, <laughs> nobody actually uses that because no, like, well, some people do. Unfortunately, do but they? they smell it? <laughs> really? Have you had like the hey, are you from heaven <laughs> or something like? Oh my god, there's all those I like an angel's missing in heaven tonight. Yeah. You're like, oh god, <laughs> puke. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's bad out there, Casey. <laughs> same thing on sales, though, right? Hey, it's the same uh, thing on sales. Yeah, or um, this discount's only for today, and it expires tonight at nine forty-four. Like you got. Yeah, yeah. Like the days of like sales teams running around at the end of the month trying so frantically to close those deals just because it's the end of the month and not because that's what makes sense for your customer's timeline. Like, yeah, those are over. That's not how we do it anymore. Um, right. I think the other, and we did have a team that kind of. You know, I've seen teams take that approach and I, I think, yeah, it's another thing that people just sense. You have to work on their timeline. You have to understand what's important to them right now in the moment and why and when it's going to be the right time and not just kind of force it. Um, I think the other things that we did really differently were we were really transparent. So, you know, we put together a really clear pricing and packaging plan and we would literally bring it up on the screen and say, absolutely, we can talk to you about, you know, how our pricing works once they asked for it, but not before. Right. So, again, it's like moving with their speed and not in some sort of sales framework that this is you're supposed to bring this up at this point and This is how you're supposed to say it. Right. We didn't. Yeah, it wasn't any of that stuff. And it, every time it worked because they're like, all right you're being honest with me, you're showing me my choices. So I have some choices. I see that you have a framework. You can explain to me how this framework was designed because it fits with you know the jobs to be done that you've already taught me about this product you're showing me. And so now I know that I can bring back to my team the right option for us and explain to them you know why it fits or get them all back on a call with you because I trust you and you won't waste my time. Right, right, none of that cheesy stuff. Well, since you've done that, you're you're the right one to help make this call then because that the earlier issue we brought up is when does marketing when's the handoff occur the yeah. sales ready and it, when you brought that up i just saw it's such a slippery slope and no wonder you hear stats about marketing taking over if sales keeps pushing back and not wanting to nurture the early ones and all they want is yeah. the end stage ones like what how do you how do you how did you draw that line where where what advice do you have around that so I think it starts way back before your marketing sales process or your marketing sales playbook. So the first thing that I did with this company was totally relaunch the brand and I redefined the brand story and who our good fit customers were. So from day one, the whole team was reading off the same script. We all understood the same story about what matters to us as a brand, what makes us different and what matters to our customers. And we really kind of shed any assumptions about who we're talking to and why we're talking to them. We actually kind of realigned ourselves around a different set of decision makers than we were before. And I think when you have like, customer success talking to one group of people and sales talking to another group of people and marketing trying to kind of talk to everyone, just everything feels so disjointed at every stage of the life cycle that none of it works. Right. So we started there. And once we had that really clear profile built, we could start to say, okay, how do we operationalize this, okay. right? And at every stage, like what's a lead? What's an MQL? And MQLs are not dead, we still use them. What's an SQL? And we're super, super disciplined about following the rules that we write down in our playbook. So if we say, you sales, you're only tagging an SQL if you've decided it's worth your time to follow up on, we're pulling them out of the automated nurture because you're gonna call them however frequently you've said. That's how we do it 
every single day until we decide otherwise. And the same thing for MQLs. It's, you know, they fit this kind of qualitative and quantitative criteria as far as like what they're engaging with, how frequently they're engaging with stuff, um, how well they fit the good fit customer criteria we set when we redefine the brand. And then again, it's, you know, you stay at that MQL until like all the boxes are checked in our playbook and then you can move to the next level. Hmm. Yeah. So it's really about discipline. And I don't think there's, um, there's not one single, Hey, this is, you know, the clear MQL or SQL for every business because every business is different, right? And the kind of people you're selling to and how fast or slowly they buy and whether you have, um, trial before all those kinds of things make a difference into, um, what the, when they should move to that next stage. It's really just about working together to define exactly what those are on yeah. both the qualitative and quantitative and being very diligent about just cause you've got, you know, a few hours of sales time tomorrow doesn't mean you check off like 10 more SQLs cause you think you can call them. If they don't fit, they don't fit. You don't like, right. yeah, you don't change the rules. So having been over there and maybe you already mentioned this cause I remember the parts that were easy, but like what, what did you realize you needed sales for after doing this experiment? So uh, the first thing I learned was it's hard when you start, right? So the first couple of calls were not as smooth as like, <laughs> the calls I did two or three months in. I did not have my spiel down. It's easy enough to sit behind my computer writing all the words that they should say. It's different to be able to say them really smoothly and clearly and um, answer those questions that you get off the fly, right? Um, it's also, what was the other? So there's no better way to learn the platform you're marketing than to have to walk through with people live on, you know, call after call after call. Um, so being an expert in the product and how it works and how people use it in real life is so, so, so important. And for us with such a niche product, that just means putting the time in because, you know, most of us aren't actually on charter school boards, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean we can't learn what it feels like to be a board member or a CEO using the product so that we can kind of talk to these people like we know them. Yeah, there there is still that value of asking any question and it's a human and it's a relationship and it there's the emotional side to it, right? To your point, no one's going to be emotionally purchasing some SaaS software that's really expensive without some kind of human interaction. There's a, there, there's a, right. a part, there's a part of that. I think sometimes there's a tendency to like, try to make everything B2C. Let's, you know, self-serve yeah. everything. And it's like, yeah. some things you can, some things you, you, I would say can't, or you just really shouldn't. Yeah. And it's largely, I mean, most things that, that are B2B are really B2B to C, right? There's, there's oh, a consumer right. out there somewhere at the end. Um, you know, you're talking to one decision maker first and it's going to spread. So you kind of have to understand the emotions and the hesitations that each of those people will bring, um, which is another piece of why you just have to get them on the phone. They're, you know, the sale's not going to happen when you send someone a contract or you send them your pricing sheet or any of that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, I think those are the two biggest things is just understanding these people and talking to them like it matters. I think the third thing, it's funny you brought up... um, the sales experience I had when I was running my own consultancy. Right. It's so hard to learn when you're a consultant to say no, right, to the customers that aren't a good fit because you just, there's this urge to just kind of bring in as many contracts as you can, especially when you're starting out. And when I was just early in the sales seat here, I definitely, the first couple times I ran into someone that I really should say, this it's not the right time for you yet and here's why. My instinct at first was not to do that because you should close every deal, but you have to, it's always better to say, hey, this isn't the right time for you and this is why than to just keep pushing um, either wasting their time or yours on something that doesn't fit. Yeah, it's so true. I remember an early sales gig I had just kind of playing around, having fun with it. And um, I was pretty good at it, but I, I was at like trade shows. And, and I remember the boss coming up to me and saying, you know, like you're doing a great job with this, but you're wasting a lot of time with people who are like just solid no's. You know, like it's yeah. not a fit for them. It's not yeah. a fit. What What do you but like? And I would keep talking to them and just, or even just more stuff. But it's like, if they're not a fit, all good. Hey, have a great show. We'll, we'll catch you later. Don't, you're not, you need to try to convert them. And meanwhile, while you're trying to do that, there's so much more opportunity. You could have been talking to people who were a good fit. And so yes. really prioritizing yeah. your time is so critical in sales. 
yeah, it's that opportunity cost. And I think every salesperson has to learn that firsthand. There's no yeah. way other than just experiencing those conversations and learning how to find that place where you, you know, gracefully exit the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So true. You, you know, you mentioned there was this abandoning of the lead scoring, the sort of the standard status quo of it. And yeah, there's the tire kickers, you know, like, yeah, yeah. What's your so, approach to the lead scoring now? Like, how do you, how do you approach that? So there was this mindset in our marketing sales machine early on that there's a difference between sales ready and tire kickers and that sales ready was like, you know, one phone call with sales and they're going to sign on or be, you know, recycled. And tire kickers were people who consumed more of our content. And that the more content someone consumed, the less likely they were to become a customer. And so that was part for of real? our lead scoring. Yeah, for real. Um, oh. I know. And so there were definitely some wrong assumptions there. And there are some that have continued to play out even since I stepped into the sales role. And I've since stepped out and we've scaled it out to a new sales manager. Um, but the other part of it, yeah. So the other part of it for us with lead scoring is just that there are parts of our, uh, what defines our good fit customers that you can't automate. So for instance, we're dealing with people who work for the organizations and people who volunteer for the organizations. There's no way to automate, like associating these people with companies or defining their roles. And so you can't score it. You know, even though the board chair might be the highest value person to talk to, there's not a way to automate that scoring. So you kept running into this over and over again. And I was like, you know what? We're putting so much time and mind share into trying to get these numbers right when mm. we're a lean team. We could just, you know, we could use workflows to automate some of this stuff, like moving people to lead into MQL, but then the rest of it, just triage these people on a daily basis, guys, and like SQL them by hand because there's not a way to automate this kind of stuff. Um, and that has worked better for us. So we figured out that more important than kind of the quantity of engaging with content was how fast we respond to them if they're a good fit. So by looking at these folks on a daily basis, triaging them manually instead of scoring them and um, moving them up the chain when it makes sense, getting, you know, dropping them an email or getting them on the phone if we had their phone number, we're closing them in what we call the window of opportunity. So whether they've downloaded one thing or all the things, if we get to them within, you know, that first day or two, we're more likely to start building that relationship with them if it's the right time for the right people. And this is not like the quantity game where you're talking about, you know, these sales teams who have their BDRs, right? Calling 50 people a day within 12 hours, every single, it's not that kind of thing at all. Yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not about quantity. It's just about timing, the right timing with the right people. Wow. Yeah. You have certainly, your, your soundbite game has continued to just dominate. Like <laughs> it's not the quantity, it's the timing, window of opportunity. Um, and that makes sense because when you first threw that gauntlet down of it's the more content they consume. And in this case, it was actually a bad thing. And it was not yeah. about the content itself or how much, which is your traditional lead scoring. They're, they're yeah. interacting with widgets. So we give them a higher score is actually the, how fast we respond if they're a good fit. That's exactly right. Like, I think yeah. the problem with lead relying on lead scoring sometimes is that you actually let people go stale because you're waiting for them to rack up the points in this game you've created. And the game yeah. is not built the right way, right? Yeah. They're, of course, they're going to keep coming back and consuming more and more stuff. If you're doing your job, you're putting out timely, relevant, useful content on a regular basis. So if they're, if nobody's reaching out to call them, they're just going to keep coming back for those, you know, the blog posts and the PDFs and the webinars and whatever else it is you're doing. And eventually they're going to have found an alternative or, you know, your competitor is going to call them and they're going to hire Someone's going to call them. Yeah. Right. And then you're dealing with the, instead of dealing with like buy versus no buy, you're trying to win them over from yeah. someone and pain of switching. And yeah. And first one to call tends to win. Yeah. yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, I guess the challenging question that comes from all this then, because it really points back to good fit. Yeah. It comes up with ABM. It comes up with all this and it mm -hmm. makes sense that you went back to the customer. Who do we actually want? But it just seems like yeah. such a challenge and people, I know I've struggled with it. You kind of want everyone back to your thing about being an entrepreneur, wanting to say yes to every project yes. and every customer. How, how did you approach the good fit? It, and 
are there like signs from the heavens saying that this is this or I mean, I think we would love it to be easier than it is, but sometimes it's like, it's hard. So yeah. how, how did you address that? So I built this process when I was consulting. Um, I went through a whole bunch of different uh, brands from, you know, I worked with schools and I worked with solo entrepreneurs and I found kind of a niche with tech founders, but the same kind of process worked with all of them that was you know, asking them a ton of questions, talking to their customers and um, defining exactly uh, what's most important to the people they're talking to and kind of shedding all the assumptions that especially founders bring to this conversation because founders, they know so much about why they built this business and the problems that it should be solving. They kind of get wrapped up in what their customers should care about, not necessarily what they do care about right now. So we get really deep into, okay, but what do people actually ask you about when they first get on the call with you? And what do they not really care about? And what are, you know, so maybe like five to 10, like here are your, the real customers, real priorities. And then we dig into, all right, what is this business and what makes it different from all the other things that are out there? What do we have to offer? What makes us valuable? And you'll find this sweet spot where those things overlap, right? What the customers actually care about and what the business actually can deliver. And that's what makes the business matter. And then you can kind of, build the rest of the plan out of that. So at Board on Track, I started by kind of doing a listening tour in the team, right? Really lengthy conversations one-on-one -on -one with every person in the team who had any interaction with the customer base, whether it was on the customer success side, the sales side, or the executives. And then of course, getting out and talking to people, which is still the most important thing that I do is to make sure I have like at least one or two calls a week with customers and prospects so that I'm hearing directly from them and not kind of second or third hand. Yeah. But yeah, so we got, I could, everybody who came to that conversation with me at the beginning had their own story of who we're talking to and why it matters. And so it was part of the challenge was just finding well, where do all the people in our team overlap? Like there have to be some like sources of truth here, <laughs> right. um, you know? And that was when we figured out that for us, we'd kind of, because we're board on track and we help with board governance, we'd really built the brand around talking to board members, but it was charter school CEOs and their staff who really had the most pain because they're the ones who put the blood, sweat and tears into these organizations, right? And they're the ones who have the most riding on the line for making sure it succeeds. The board members are dedicated, but they're volunteers. Yeah. So we kind of shifted the whole company to be built more around um, what the people with the most pain have and what matters to them and where that overlaps with all the other other profiles of people we were talking to. That's a fascinating story. So you're saying originally it, it was called Board on Track. So you were looking for board members and wanted to talk to yeah. board members. And then when you really did the investigation, and I love that quote, um, what, what are the priorities? What are the pains? What are they, what they actually are, not what they should be from. Yeah. You know, oh, they should be really concerned with this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but they really are actually concerned with this other thing. So you, you yeah. realized that there was another source to get this in place. And it was actually the professionals who were being paid to be running these charter schools. And yeah. they, they were the conduit. To yeah, exactly. All this. Yeah. Wow. And the other thing we learned that I think a lot of, companies like ours that are like the combination of tech and expert consulting is that your customers change over time yeah. as they evolve with you. So the things that our customers care about most after one, two, three, four years with us are usually different than what the people who aren't customers of ours care about yet because they don't know yet because they haven't been taught by us for years on how to think differently about what they do. So you know, what we find to be like the wedge to start a conversation with someone who hasn't ever talked with us before is going to be totally different. What they care about, what's most urgent to them right now is totally different than someone who's been working with us for a few years. And we can't take that for granted. Okay. Interesting. It's crazy. Just what having a few conversations will, will do. Um, you know, I wanted to shift a little bit because your title is interesting. You were the chief marketing officer. And now you're the chief experience officer, CXO. Where did that come from? So it's kind of an evolving trend, especially in the tech space. Um, you know, it's, it's this idea that marketing doesn't live in a box anymore. Marketing, I kind of, I've started to wonder if we're actually living in like this post-marketing world where there's, there's just not a border between marketing and the rest of the business. 
marketing touches every single stage yeah, of does. the life cycle. You know, we're starting to see these roles like life cycle marketing manager, that kind of stuff. And you can address it that way. But in um, especially a SaaS team, you need every stage of the life cycle to feel the same to the people experiencing it from first touch all the way through, you know, the sales process, the onboarding, every aspect of the product they experience, it all needs to feel like it came from the same hands and is, is being presented with the same voice. And unless you have a role like mine that's defined as a chief experience officer where, you know, I'm thinking about every single stage and, you know, what content are we putting out there and how are we teaching people about what we have to offer and how does that feel on a qualifying call and how does it feel when we hand them off from sales to what do the invoices look like what do we say yeah. on the con like every single aspect what does it feel like when they launch this part of the platform it all has to feel the same and like the same brand and like we're delivering on the promise that we promised them from the first call well, so yeah it's fine yeah it, it touches everything and, and you're right it's it's that much more of a challenge but it's cool because there is no no limit here what what keeps you up at night your cxo you you're across the journey yeah does that mean more things it does mean more things so i think what keeps me up at night most is staying really focused on the right things because you know marketing alone is endless we could always be doing more and most marketers are creative first. And so we always, we have endless ideas of all the things we'd love to be doing and the things we'd love to be writing and the page we'd like to make even more beautiful than it already is. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> then you layer onto that being part of every release planning meeting and, you know, optimizing every part of the, the platform and being part of the sales calls and, you know, working closely with the customer success team on how we structure the customer life cycle. You just can't do everything. So I had to be really, really focused on um, both what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And um, I'm now actually really purposeful about the things I'm not doing. So I keep a parking lot list. All right, here are the things that, you know, would be great to do, but we're not doing this week. <laughs> because otherwise it's too easy to um, get off track and not, not be tackling the right things at the right time. And then on that note, how do you stay on track? <laughs> That's a great question. So I'm laughing at myself this week that it's taken me two years to learn how to use Basecamp effectively. In my nice. <laughs> but it really has. So my team is so reliant on Basecamp and I spent probably the first year being pretty resistant to it as a marketer that there, you know, there's other platforms that marketers use for um, planning our campaigns and, you know, sure. co-schedule fun and HubSpot for this and the, anyway, all these different things. Um, but yeah, I now live in Basecamp all day long. Um, I start by kind of drafting my strategy in just a Google Doc. And I kind of get the team on board with that. So we do year-round planning, and then we break that down to quarters. We kind of use an OKRs model, but it's kind of our own approach to it. It's not like a really strict OKRs model. Um, and so for me, it means- OKRs? Every, yeah, OKRs, objectives and key results. Huh. Okay. Oh, you can go down a rabbit hole with that for, we could do a whole <laughs> hour and a half on that. Um, yeah, that's when you come back, we'll have to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. When we come back and talk about it. Yeah. yeah. But so we, so basically you think about like the, what, what are the business's top objectives for this year? You know, what percentage growth are we trying to get to, for instance, or what's our ARR at the end of this year? And how are we going to get that through new business and renewals? And what does that mean for a number of accounts? And then what does that mean for, what marketing is going to do and what sales is going to do, what customer success, what we're going to do with product. Yeah. And for me, being a marketing team of one with lots of amazing agencies and freelancers behind me and then, you know, the other parts of the CXO role, it means being really clear about picking a couple of themes that relate both to the customer side and the prospect side of the house every quarter so that everything yeah. I do actually raises the tide on both sides of the house at the same time. Um, so we're going to do a webinar super. It's going to be relevant to both sides of the house and it's going to work yeah. to, you know, train our customers on how we want them to behave and teach our prospects why they need us. And then all the content we spin out around it will again, do the same thing. It will boost engagement in the tools we want them to use this quarter and it'll get the prospects to schedule calls with us because they want to learn more about solving those problems. So mm. yeah. I could see how just the focus, you know, just making sure I mean, you only have limited time, just staying on track with that makes sense. Um, 
What about the future? What what has you what has you jazzed? What has you going? Oh, there's something going on over here. Is it maybe a new technology or strategy? What what's got your attention these days? So, yeah. So other than um, thinking about how this this whole post marketing world is evolving, right? I think yeah. like every marketing role is going to change really quickly over the next few years with this this experience versus marketing idea. Um, I am, I'm keeping a side eye on what AI is doing to marketing, um, especially, you know, as you see all these kind of AI copywriting bots coming out and um, I have very mixed feelings about them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of them are ridiculously good and it's amazing to see technology, you know, be able to do half my job and I would love yeah. to, you know, no longer need a human to be sitting there writing tweets all day. Cause um, it's not necessarily what people have to spend their time doing anymore, but at the same time, yeah, there are a lot of ethics questions about it. There's a lot of, um, brand questions about, uh, relying on that kind of technology yeah. and yeah. So it's, it's a double-edged sword for sure. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, you know, like I've known you for a bit, um, but I'd, I'd love to know, like, who are you? Who are you? Can you take me back in time? Like little Rachel days, you know, where'd you grow up? Did you always know you're going to be a marketer? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. When I was five years old, I was running around going, I'm going to be a marketer at a tech company one day. Right. Oh, the CPC um, on that is high, you know, like. Oh. Right? Yeah. So, no. So I grew up in the D.C. area, um, okay. which is kind of relevant to my path because um, I was very involved in, you know, political action from a really young age. I thought like everybody grew up marching on Washington and shouting <laughs> at the White House and um, that's not how everyone grew up. I definitely took it for granted that all that stuff was like right down the street and um, so kind of accessible. Um, but I, my plan was that I was going to be a starving artist when I grew up. And I really vividly remember like doing the dishes with my dad when I was about my daughter's age, I was probably like seven or eight and announcing I'm going to be a starving musician when I grow up. That's what I'm going to do. I had every intention. I was um, was a, doing classical piano then, and I was singing, and then I grew up and went to Berkeley with every intention of being a rock star when I grew up. Um, but, you know, things change as we, as we evolve and as we enter the world after college, for sure. Um, so, you know, I finished school and did exactly what I expected to do. I taught music lessons, worked behind the counter at a guitar store and uh, played in a band and a bunch of uh, dive bars that no longer exist all over Boston because <laughs> this was so long ago. Um, but yeah, my my priorities started to shift and I started to ask myself a lot of questions about, you know, if this is, if this is what work is going to be like for the next however many decades I'm going to do it, is this really what I want it to be? do I need it to mean something different and something more? And I kind of reached back to those roots of growing up in the DC area. And um, I landed an entry level job in a nonprofit um, using my other skill, which is words and, and writing and um, was in fundraising and development communications and totally thought, all right, I'm gonna keep doing all the music stuff on the side. This is just like what yeah. I do during the day. But I just got so passionate about the work that I was doing, um, everything else kind of fell That's away. Cool. Yeah, and I, I was there for almost 10 years. And um, some of the stuff that I instituted while I was there, they still do. Um, so it was it was a global human rights organization. And that was where I started to learn kind of not only the power of story to get people mm. to do things and engage and you know pull out their wallets, but also how important it is to simplify stories to make them make sense for people, right? And to mm. kind of make them a manageable scale and size and really that kind of one-to-one -one partnership, um, not, you know, coming at someone saying, here's everything that's happening in, you know, North Africa, but here's this one person's life that we changed through uh, this program, you know? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's cool. They still use those stories now. Um, and yeah, I, so after close to 10 years, I became a mom and Yay. Uh, yeah. So toughest job thinking, ever toughest job yeah it was not easy um yeah and now i have two um yeah but so your priorities change when you become mm -hmm. a parent right so i took a step back for a year kind of rethought what i wanted the next chapter of my career to be i knew i wanted a little bit more growth and challenge than i had in this 50 person nonprofit. and um so when i was ready to come back out i still wanted to be mission driven i knew i was yeah. the kind of person that could just go work anywhere um 
again, kind of landed the perfect thing at the perfect time doing corporate marketing at Bright Horizons. So here I was a mom mm -hmm. reentering the workforce, very much in need of childcare and a supportive workplace, marketing those services to other large employers um, yeah. who needed the same thing. So it was, yeah, it was awesome. I was there for several years before I decided it was kind of a now or never moment. If I was ever gonna like really test myself as a marketer and take the leap and kind of go out on my own, I just needed to, to do it. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, working with all sorts of different brands, um, large and small. Um, yeah, it was an adventure. I I recommend it to just about anyone. You know, did we meet when you were at Bright Horizons? We did. So did we, we were switching from Marketo to Pardot okay. when we brought you guys in. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. I, I thought so, yeah. but then at the same time, I was like, I've known you at 929 and you're consulting yeah. for so long that I was like, when did we meet? But yeah, so it was Bright Horizons. Then that makes sense. Yeah, it was forever ago. It was like the early days of marketing automation, right? Like I, I remember when we were deciding on Marketo, I brought in Eloqua, HubSpot, and Marketo to compare to decide who we were going to go with. And it was like, that was that whole, that whole experience was shifting this whole enterprise level sales team over from an outbound mindset to an inbound mindset. Because yeah. it was all so new back then. I mean, this was, you know, I started there 10 ish years ago um so yeah that was crazy the whole concept was new yeah i remember that and then so, suddenly in in there's pardot now like yeah, and like, then there's pardot. <laughs> the memo comes you guys are getting pardot now so so figure it out <laughs> yeah 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 that was an adventure Man. yeah but so i've basically worked in every platform now because i've been in marketo and i've been yeah. in pardot i've been in do you have a favorite forever Oh, should I tell you that I like HubSpot the best? <laughs> oh, you like it the best. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that, so because I'm like a marketing team of one, yeah. I don't have an in-house full-time, you know, system admin. I think that HubSpot is the best fit for us. Mm -hmm. I think for enterprise, for sure, like a Pardot or a Marketo can be an awesome fit. Um, yeah, yeah the, really the size fun. of the company and, and how much time you can devote to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, especially if it's just you and you're doing strategy and all these other things. It's yeah. you just need the tool to get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I brought in agencies here and there. So I, I when I first started, I brought in an amazing agency that really helped me kind of clean up and scale our nice. installation to make it work for us. Um and yeah, they made a huge difference and we then we could kind of fly without them after we'd had them right. for long enough. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now CXO you, and you really, you've done everything in it, but still mission driven. That's cool that you, you've yeah. still been able to do that, even though there's all those other, other things going on. Um, you're still able to stay tied to some kind of mission. Cause yeah. Yeah. That's been really, really important. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I mentioned, I think that when I was consulting, some of my clients were schools uh, as well as solo entrepreneurs and tech and some other things. And so that was how I even learned about board on track to begin with. Yeah. Um, and it was another kind of just the right meeting with the right person at the right time. And yeah. um, they really needed someone to kind of come in and lead the marketing function and scale it up. And the mission made sense to me being a mom of two kids in public school. And, you know, we, I think, take for granted the incredible quality of the school systems here. Um, the mission of most charter schools around the country is to bring public, really high quality public education to kids who wouldn't otherwise have access mm, to it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Board on Track exists to kind of help those schools deliver on that mission, because if you don't have good governance, you're not going to have a good school. You're not going to have good results. And it takes a couple of things. It takes a CEO who really understands how governance works and it takes the board who really understands how they should work and how they can support the CEO. And having them kind of work together to on both the operational side of governance and the strategic side of governance. Yeah. So, you know, it's so especially the last year to be doing this work has been really, really amazing and inspiring to get on the phone with these school leaders who literally have lives in their hands. It's it's um, so stressful on top of um, all the families and the kids that are counting on them just to kind of put them on the right path in life. Now they have to add to it sleepless nights over you know who's gonna get covid next and yeah the, the the teachers too and a lot of them are older and they're the ones you don't want getting it so yeah, yeah earlier people thinking it's the kids it's like no the kids are fine they're not even gonna notice it it's like it's that poor yeah. old lady who comes in and teaches those 
youngsters that yeah, we got to protect exactly. them. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the governance side of things, you know, we had so charter school boards generally are required to meet in person, right? It's, you know, um, charter schools are public entities. They're using public funds. And so they have to be really transparent to the public about how they're using those funds and how they're supporting the kids that rely on them. It. So all of a sudden, none of us are allowed to meet in person in any way, no. right? So all these <laughs> boards and CEOs were trying to figure out how do we do this? And, you know, here we are, an online governance platform. So all of a sudden, they literally needed us to keep operating and um, make sure that the the kind of especially operational and like task oriented side of board governance wasn't getting in the way of the really important things they were doing. Like, I mean, these schools were scrambling in days and weeks to make sure that all of their kids, especially schools where, you know, 90 plus percent of the kids are below the poverty line, they were making sure these kids had devices in their hands and they had access to the internet. They were figuring out how to deliver meals to kids who were reliant on the schools to make sure they had at least one hot meal a day. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a very mission-driven role as well as growth-driven. So it's it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you been able to play lately? Keep Not your inner rock star. Not in forever. Yeah, I yeah. actually I'm thinking about making a deal with my son who I cannot get him to practice on a daily basis. <laughs> like maybe we need to make a deal that like you practice your percussion 15 minutes a day, I'll practice the bass 15 minutes a day. Well. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll meet in the middle. I'll get started again. You're halfway yeah. to a band at that point. I know exactly. And my daughter loves to sing. So what? yeah, if we could just get someone to come out here and tune the piano, we'd be good. Right. Or, <laughs> or like an acoustical guitar or something like that or electric yeah. or yeah. Well, it's so funny. My son picked up a guitar for the first time the other day and he was like, mom, I didn't know what to do with it. It was too small. And I didn't know what he was meant at first, but like, he's only ever picked up a bass. And I'm like, uh, oh yeah, I get it. I'm the same way. I never played guitar. I don't understand these like tiny, tiny strings because bass strings are like huge, totally different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. Wow. <laughs> well, hey, <laughs> hypothetical question for you. If right. you can go back in time, because I might actually have a time machine up here in Nashua. Um, okay. So after COVID, you can, you can use it if I have one. Um, it's in the, it's in the backyard under a tarp, but so you get to use this time Probably machine. Cleaning regulations. We can figure it out. Uh, we, we will figure it out. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll wipe it down or something, but, uh, you get to use this thing. It goes back in time, but it goes to a specific time and place. It goes, you get to meet yourself, um, back in the day, right after you graduated, a couple of days after you graduated, um, college, you get that undergrad, yeah. been playing music. You get to meet her that Rachel yeah. what kind of things would you tell her knowing all the things you've been through the consulting the CXO the, the sales the, this and that life in general what, what would you tell yeah. her I think that I would tell her that not only is it okay to pivot but that you should I think that um my generation you know the <laughs> uh, kind of cross between Gen X and millennial. I heard somebody call us Xennials the other day, and I think that makes a lot of sense. X what? Um, Xennial. Because I'm like, Ooh. I'm so like, I'm not, I'm right in between. Like I'm, I'm an elder millennial, if you would say. Like I'm above that, but I'm also like most Gen Xers are are way ahead of me. So Xennial. So I think we were kind of the beginning of the end of the idea of a career path, right? That like you go mm. to college for a thing and you know that's what you're gonna do and you just do that thing for 20, 30, 40 years and then you're done. Let alone anybody working in the same company for that long, right. right? That's like, we were the beginning of the end of that. But so if you're the beginning of the end of that, you enter the world with this concept that what I plan to do and who I plan to be is like, it has to, that has to stay. Yeah, static, it was decided right? your freshman year in college kind of thing. Yeah. Or before, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's not um, at all. So, I mean, I, 20 years ago, definitely could not have imagined where I am now, let alone the other twists and turns that I took in my career. And I'm yeah. so glad that I took every single one. Um, I think the other thing I would say is that, and I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I think a lot of us just have a knack of like landing in the right place at the right time. And when that's the case, you just have to trust it and go with it. Yeah. Don't plan too hard sometimes. <laughs> you can't yeah. control everything. Yeah. I mean, so, what you can plan, great. If you can't plan it, you got to roll with that too. And things just yeah. change. I think I've always, I've always known what's important to me. 
And um, even if kind of how that translates into everyday life might have changed, the core mm -hmm. values that are never did. And when you know what's important to you, you, you do kind of just end up where you need to be and you find the people you need to find and, and nurture the right connections and yeah it all yeah. fall into place yeah they do you got to kind of yeah. got to roll with it kind of be accepting allowing of it to happen yeah i love you said not only just you could pivot but you probably should what yeah what did you pivot to like i, I know specifically what you pivoted to but yeah. was it just that feel that you're just having fun and you just kind of went with that or it was clicking what what yeah what well, gave you the strength to pivot like that so when I was working in the music store and I was looking around at these guys who'd been there for 20 years and they didn't seem happy, that was what, that was the first spark of, I don't know that I want to be these guys in 20 years. Cause I think that, you know, they can't imagine doing anything else, but they're not really happy to come to where they are every day. Um, so I had absolutely never considered another path. I remember so well, like sitting down at night in my apartment on monster.com, like looking through job listings, like, I don't know what I'm looking for here because I had never considered what a day job would look like for me. But I reached back to what I knew was important to me. And um, when I happened to see this listing at a nonprofit that I knew because um, it had been part of what shaped my worldview when I was a kid, I happened to have you know, participated in the annual fundraising programs with them. And it's how I learned about human rights and social justice when I was growing up. I was like, well, there's a fit here somehow. And yeah. um, I wrote a really good cover letter that talked about why they mattered to me. Um, I'm sure if I read it now, I would think it was atrocious, but for 21 years old, it, it was good enough to get me in the door. Right. Um, you know, and it, it fit with, it fit enough with what mattered to me and what my values were that I, I got in the door and was just so excited to, um, be doing that work for real. And I, the fundraising programs that I led and that I changed with those, you know, the human rights stories are exactly the same things that shaped my worldview when I was a kid. So it was this yeah. added, like, it was just the right thing at the right time. Yeah. And you, and you went, what was important to me? You went, you like yeah. tied into the values, your North star, no matter yeah. what you like, I don't even know what job description I fit here, but I, time to, pull up the hustle pants and just like make something happen here. Yeah, exactly. Because it feels like I, I want to be a part of it. I want to help out. I want to be as part of something bigger than myself. I yeah. also knew, you know, even when I was at Berkeley, I was the kid who like, I, I spent as much time on my English papers as I did on other stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, my friends were like, why are you doing that? You're like, it, it's not the most important class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not English at Berkeley is at least in the nineties. was not as hard as, you know, it might've been at Columbia. Right. But I just, I always loved reading and writing as much as anything else. I would get up early in the morning to, you know, listen to jazz or classical really quietly. So I didn't wake up anybody else who was in the room, right. All my roommates yeah. and stuff and um, just read quietly for an hour just kind of be in that place. Um, I've always been a really heavy reader and writer. And so, yeah, it was like, if I'm going to pivot out of music, even during the day, it still needs to be creative. It still needs to be, feel like I'm creating something as well as connecting to something larger than myself. Totally. Whether it's music or marketing or whatever, you're yeah. still doing that. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel about um, podcasting and performance yeah. and theater and it may not be on a stage stage, but it's like a, it's a, I'm storytelling, I'm learning. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's like it's like you you find ways that sort of tie into those values in different right. ways. Yeah, they can ideally yeah. help people in a business and yeah. Yeah, you're That's connecting cool. with people one on one through your podcast. I mean, you mm -hmm. had so many people on here and what a awesome and diverse bunch of people, right? Yeah. You're bringing them all to this whole Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, the diverse is really a cool part of it where you can actually see it um and it's even they make the more diverse the better, really because yeah that exposes you to more thoughts and ideas around it, you know, versus, you know, it's like LinkedIn. If you just follow the same people, you're just going to hear the same yeah. content creation over and over again, which we know from our earlier conversation, right. it's not necessarily leading them down the victory no. path. That might, they no. might be the worst customers ever, but they're consuming that content. But right. um, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Is um, you're going to, you're going to blend some music. You're going to do a musical podcast for board on track. You're going <laughs> to, that would be really fun. I don't know. Maybe. 
We'll think about it. <laughs> you never know, right? Music Who and knows? marketing somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very uh, opinionated about my music, so. <laughs> uh oh. Oh yeah. It, so you know, on that note, you mentioned you were reading earlier. What are you yeah. reading these days? So my like learning focus for the beginning of the year is all about storytelling. Um, oh, I got yeah. really into this towards the end of the calendar year. I was just falling down all these rabbit holes about like what stories do people tell themselves and why do they, how does storytelling work to pull people into different belief sets? And, you know, how is that um, influencing how divided we are as a culture and how much does marketing have to own kind of how divided we've become as a culture and yeah. um, how we consume facts versus opinions and all this kind of stuff. So um, right now I'm reading the science of story, which is amazing. I can't say enough about it. Um, and then um, next up is definitely going to be, you know, the hero's journey just to kind of get into story structure. Um, also that, the myth that's of that famous one, right? Yeah. I think I have yeah. that. It's hard. There's like though. a lot of stuff that's based out of that. Like uh, some guys I say that like the whole story brand platform is really just that in different language. <laughs> Translated <laughs> to human. Yeah. Joseph Campbell, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I read like five sentences. Actually, it was one really? sentence. It was five sentences stuck like, no. together. And I was like, ooh, this this either requires like a glass of wine or something. But this that's is funny. a it's almost like a Hemingway book at that point. Yeah. But, OK. Yeah. Here's yeah, your next. But yeah, Will Stores, The Science of Storytelling is amazing. And then also The Myth of Experience is the other thing that I'm in right now, which is um, all about how the stories that we tell ourselves basically are almost always going to be partly false because they're based in our own experience. And we kind of, we overweight our experience, even though, of course, our experiences are limited by so many different factors. And it kind of plays into how, as marketers, you know, how do we tell a success story and how do we tell a case study and all these mm-hmm. kinds of things. And yeah. I don't have any easy answers. In fact, I wrote a piece recently about asking whether we can be honest in marketing at all, because there aren't easy answers here. Like a case study has to fall into all the errors of the myth of experience. You have to ignore certain um, random, you know, variables because you are trying to simplify and shorten it. But at the same time, we can make some conscious choices about how much of that stuff we tell or don't tell and how much we play into um, how easy it is for humans to buy good ideas or bad ideas through story when we know that we're doing it and we know how it works and what it does to our brains. That's so crazy. I was just thinking about stories earlier. Um, we'll have, we'll have to chat, chat again. I, storytelling it just see it's fun it's a part of the human experience it's we remember stories like i have a group i'm in and we're we're forced if people asking for advice we forbidden from giving advice we can only give them stories or experiences right i love that okay and if anyone tries to tell you what to do they're like man they used to have little red cards we could hold like nope nope that's not. So you have to decide what you're going to take from the story. Nobody can say yes. this is what I think you should do. And I love that. they decide what they're going to take from your story. And all you yeah. can do is give the story. And you can't even be like, and so what I learned in the end was blah. You, you, can't, you don't even do that. You're like, this is this challenge. This is what I did. This is what happened. This is how I That's felt awesome. about it. And then what's crazy is you're right. People end up, you know, you think you want to put this lesson out there for people. Like, this is yeah. my fable. Here's my lesson and then people maybe get something completely different out of it but it's what they needed and they remember the story whereas the other guy that gave 10 points of advice i don't even remember what the advice was but i remember that one story where the person shared the intensity of that situation yeah it's how we learn we're all you know we talk about right tribes like yeah seth i think that the word is kind of overused now but um we are, we're wired to want to fit into certain tribes. We're wired to seek status and to avoid losing it. And we're wired to kind of look for who we want to be like. So our customers are more likely to um, say, I want to be like that guy than they are to say, I want to buy this thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can use that for good or, or for not good. Right. Right. If you use our powers for, for good, um, much has been given, much is required. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's an influential role, you know, um, marketing. And I do, I'm thinking a lot about kind of how, I don't know, how the, how what we do as marketers plays into the kind of the larger, um, social structure of how people consume content, Mm -hmm. consume facts and, 
and how they filter it. And, you know, I think that it's too easy for anybody in marketing, whether you're like a social media manager for one brand or, you know, C-suite in an enterprise, you know, or anything in between, it's too easy for us to think about our work just in the context of what we're doing right now on our computer or what we're doing in the context of our brand. But it's all going out there into the larger world and mixing into, you know, this larger zeitgeist and, and um, changing the temperature in our society. And I think, uh, yeah, we can all think about our jobs as being bigger than ourselves in our yeah. own ways. Yeah. And it, it affects people. Yeah. It, it really does. It really touches lives and careers. And I mean, no matter what you're selling, whether you're selling yeah. a widget, you know, or some SaaS software or something, it does yeah. affect people's lives in the end. Yeah, exactly. And how people think, how people think about themselves, all that stuff. Yeah. So this has been awesome. Where can people reach out, connect with you, learn more? All that. Throw out some social platforms, URLs, all that. Yeah. So the easiest thing is to go to my website and just click over to all my other things. So rachelbjordan.com is my website. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter a bunch. I'm not really on other stuff. I'm on Clubhouse now, but I haven't done anything yet. Hey, I'm, me too. Yeah. So I'm Rachel B. Jordan on Clubhouse, but yeah, I haven't decided kind of how to, how to get started. Um, it's funny. I've mostly um, lurked on there. I haven't hosted anything. Yeah, exactly. I keep getting all these alerts about so-and-so is doing this or that. I kept seeing it pop up in my LinkedIn feed. Like Dan Martell's like, I'm going to be on tonight from six to nine. I'm like, what are you doing? And yeah, so now I'm on, but I still don't, I don't know um, how I'll, how I'll engage or I don't know. I saw Dharmesh Shah posted on LinkedIn the other day, like he's on Clubhouse, but he hasn't done anything. And he realized it's because he's an extrovert and he already gets so like, wound up about like zoom calls and stuff and now like clubhouse is like a zoom call times a thousand i was like oh yeah that's why i haven't figured out how to start yet yeah um, but anyway so you can find me on rachelbjordan.com i'm also um i'm about to be on this new mentorship platform for mm. mostly to help like early stage career folks in startup and tech scene especially SaaS, called growth mentors so i'll link to that as soon as it's up i'm excited to start helping those guys out um, yeah, and cool. of course my company boardontrack.com, um, you know, if you want to kind of see how I do what I do during the day or learn more about what we do for charter schools and, you know, we've got some private schools, higher ed and other yeah. nonprofits who work with us too. So definitely check us out. That's awesome. And we, what we'll do is we'll put all those links in the show notes. Um, but I, I did follow you on clubhouse. So don't forget to follow me back. I will um, follow you back. You know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, something that maybe I'm not extroverted enough because I've, I've, by the way, I have extra invites if anyone listening needs them. Right. Yeah, we <laughs> so too have a couple. <laughs> happy to hook people up. Just send me a note. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I've listened to some really interesting chats, but in terms of like, ooh, let me go talk about something, I, I don't know. Like, that's funny because I think of you as an extrovert, at least more extroverted than I am. <laughs> yeah, but like the whole, like, I don't know. Some of it can be kind of self-serving and I just, yeah, you know, I, mean, I want to help people out, but like, do I need to have like my own chat? You know, if anything, it'd be like, Hey, how can I help you in the next five minutes? You know? Yeah. Same. Uh, that kind of thing. Same. Um, but yeah. I will say one of the most hilarious things I've ever listened to was on clubhouse. It was um, comedy. It was like one of their comedy channels, a bunch of comedians nice. on there. And it was um, free therapy. Um, from people who have been to at least one therapy session, <laughs> right? I love so it. So it's like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. I've, I've been yeah. to one. I, I'm happy to advise you. And it was essentially like the, the opposite worst advice you could ever give someone for anything. Um, and it, okay. it, I don't know if it, how funny, it, it's almost like none of it, if it was transcribed, people would be like, that's, why would you say that? But no, right. it's like the but people that's, asking that's the, the question we're asking the worst questions to set up the the host of the room oh, okay. to answer them. And, you know, someone would be like, you know, this, this, this girl won't stop leaving me alone or she's stalking me. And then they're like, why are you robbing her of your presence? Like right. this, is, this is an <laughs> ego challenge. You need to check your status, know. you know, and right. like, give her, give her your time. Like, it's and just he's a like, bunch of comics trolling each other. <laughs> yeah. They were just all trolling each other. And then you could That's tell so because funny. the comic asking the question would, would ask yeah. and then they uh it was the I best i'm a huge comedy nerd so yeah it was I, the most yeah, inappropriate like 
it was hilarious. I just couldn't stop laughing. You know, it was. Well, if you like that, Tig Notaro has a hilarious podcast called Don't Ask Tig, where she gives out terrible advice. And she's like, you guys, and she always has a different, like, famous comic or someone else on there with her. And that's cool. I I keep telling you guys not to ask me, and you ask me anyway. So I'm going to give you (laughs) advice. And she's just got, you know, the driest. Nobody has her sense of humor. So, yeah. 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 Oh, and I also, there was, uh, there was like dating that was happening on Clubhouse. Oh, no. Where, where, um, it was really interesting because it was like, like for real date. No, you can't date. No, for real. It was like a dating show. <laughs> so, wow. so they pick someone and they bring them up to the stage. Be like, okay, tell us a little about yourself. Okay. Now who in the audience caught your eye? And they would literally go like so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. They'd invite them all up to the stage and they'd be like, oh my God. so-and-so they, it was like, shoot your shot. So they're like, you got 30 seconds. Talk to these men or women they went back and forth and talked to these people what tell them about yourself and they would have their shot and then they asked people so so and so what what do you think you know like did it work out did they find any like the usual friends was like yeah we could take it to the dms (laughs) what a commitment yeah yeah wild especially in covid times yeah totally And Bob was just waiting for someone to say my name. So I'll be like, leave, <laughs> leave chat. Right. <laughs> don't yeah. promote me. I don't want to. No. Just, just lurking. <laughs> just lurking. Oh, man. Well, this it has is. been awesome. Thanks again for coming on here, just hanging yeah. out. Um, we'll have to have you come back and talk stories once you get through those yeah. books. I know. Yeah. Awesome. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes on the Heroes Journey. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please help me out. Help yeah. me with that book report so I don't have to read it. Absolutely. Um, that'd be awesome. But yeah, thanks again. This has been cool. Yeah, this is so fun. So fun. Thanks for having me. It's cool to catch up too. We'll have to yeah. we'll have to make it not every uh couple of years of the career. <laughs> let's, let's I know, right? Touch. Let's keep track. <sighs> but this is awesome. Um uh, I'm just stoked at all the things you're doing. So this is this has been cool. Awesome. Thanks. Well, for everyone out there listening, this has been the hardcore marketing show. We will catch you all next time. <laughs>